I take as my text for the sermon on this Lord's Day, Micah chapter 3, verse 8. But truly, I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord and of judgment and of might to declare unto Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Actually, the sermon will be divided into two parts. Part one, this Lord's Day. Part two, when we return from Prince George. Sermon today will focus on a faithful ministry. Part two will focus on an unfaithful ministry. Dear ones in Zechariah chapter 4, there appears a vision of two olive trees pouring forth their oil into the golden pipes of the sacred candlestick of the temple. And in this remarkable and encouraging prophecy, the Lord declares to his disheartened people that by means of two ordinances, He would promote reformation of the true religion in their midst by means of the office of the magistrate and by means of the office of the minister. In Zechariah's prophecy, the Lord would, in fact, empower Zerubbabel, the prince, and he would empower Joshua, the priest, to pour forth their graces, their gifts, their energies, into the enlightening work of biblical reformation throughout the kingdom of Israel. Moreover, this imagery of the two olive trees receives further attention in John's prophecy in Revelation chapter 11, verse 4, wherein we find two faithful witnesses prophesying or preaching for 1260 days which according to prophetic reckoning is actually 1260 years wherein a year is accounted for each day according to Daniel 70 weeks wherein 490 days is accounted according to biblical prophecy as 490 years. And so these two witnesses prophesy or preach For 1260 years, these two faithful witnesses are also described as two olive trees. The same imagery, the same idea as was mentioned back in Zechariah chapter 4. It would seem, however, in Revelation chapter 11... that these two witnesses or these two olive trees direct their ministry against the gross backsliding and apostasy in the office of the magistrate and in the office of the minister. In confirmation of this, the Apostle John identifies actually in chapter 13 of Revelation the two great enemies of the faithful Two witnesses of these two olive trees, the two great adversaries and enemies 
who persecute the saints, who run down the saints as being the ungodly civil government, which is the beast that comes from out of the sea. And as a corrupt and unfaithful church, the second enemy, the unfaithful and corrupt church, which is the beast that comes from out of the land. Now, I know I've given you a lot already to think about, but consider this. Herein in this prophecy is conveyed to us by the Holy Spirit the significance of the offices of magistrate and minister to the reformation of the true Christian religion. Whether it be within a nation or whether it be within the world at large. And that is why Satan raises up correspondingly enemies the civil government an ungodly civil government to attack a godly civil government or in distinction from a godly civil government and an unfaithful ministry in distinction from a faithful ministry. You see, dear ones, faithfulness in the offices of magistrate and minister brings Reformation. This is the way the Lord has throughout history brought reformation to His church. Those two offices, those two ordained offices of God. Thus, if we would find our place as a church amongst the two faithful witnesses, our message must be like theirs. And like that of Micah and other faithful prophets from ages gone by, our message must be the same toward a faithful exercise of the office of the magistrate and toward a faithful exercise of the office of the ministry. Having considered previously in our sermon on the magistrate, what the office of magistrate is and how it is abused and misused, we now, this Lord's Day, will turn our attention to the office of minister. Dear ones, I cannot imagine a more significant and practical issue than the office of minister. I cannot think of something more important to you and to your families than to have a faithful ministry. Under the ministry of which church, for example, which pastors, which doctrine, which worship, which discipline and which government should you place yourselves? From which ministers should you receive the gospel ordinances, such as the Word and the sacraments? The spiritual life and growth of yourselves and of your children depends upon the right answers to these questions. And the reformation of the true Christian religion and even the the uh, inauguration of the millennial kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ here upon the earth is intimately connected to the right answers to these questions. 
very basic and fundamental, yet very practical questions and issues that we consider this Lord's Day. I direct you, dear ones, to the following main points in my sermon. Just two this Lord's Day. First of all, the office of minister defined. And second, the faithful minister described. Let us consider then our first main point, the office of minister defined. Before considering the prophets and priests who had corrupted their ministry, as we'll consider the next time we gather and consider the prophecy of Micah, it's necessary first to understand the sacred office of minister, which has been ordained by the Lord. In other words, you cannot understand how one has perverted the office until you understand what the office is. You'll never understand what's been corrupted about the office until you understand what it is in its rightly constituted state. How God ordained the office of minister to be. And how those who are faithful are to walk in that calling. Just as we made the distinction when we discussed the issue of the magistrate, we made a distinction between the office and the person holding the office, so we must likewise, when we consider the whole issue of the office of minister and the person holding that office, make the same distinction. I would have you, first of all, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. As we consider the office of minister, 1 Timothy chapter 3, herein we very clearly note the distinction between office and person. In verse 1, we read, This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. At the very outset, there is the distinction made between one who aspires to the office and the office itself. They are not one and the same thing. There may be in times of apostasy and corruption, a great dissimilarity between the office and the person who is holding the office. The ideal certainly is, and what God intends, is that the person who holds the office holds it as the office has been ordained by the Lord. We find in verses 2 through 7 in 1 Timothy chapter 3, then the qualifications of those who are to be placed into the sacred office of bishop or pastor. 
You know, the same distinction between office and person is made in the Old Testament with regard to the priesthood. As I mentioned from our Old Testament reading today, it made a distinction between Aaron or the sons of Aaron and the office of priesthood. This is throughout the scripture, the case. We need to understand first then what the office of the minister is before we can understand how the minister is to perform his office. And in order to do that, I ask you again to turn with me to a passage in the New Testament. Colossians chapter 1, verse 25. We find these words from the Apostle Paul. Whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Now, although the word office is not used in this verse, Certainly, the concept of office is very clearly in view in this verse, as we will see. Here, the Apostle Paul, as a minister in the universal visible church, and not only as an apostle of Jesus Christ, but as a minister of Christ's universal visible church, he identifies three essential characteristics of the office of minister whether it may be the office of prophet or priest of the Old Testament, or whether it be of the offices of prophet, evangelist, pastor, or teacher in the New Testament. Three essential qualities or characteristics of the office of minister. First of all, the office of a minister according to the Apostle Paul, is a stewardship. The word that's used in this verse is dispensation. A dispensation simply is a dispensing of that which has been entrusted to it. Therefore, it is the office of stewardship that the Apostle talks about that was committed to him. A stewardship which was a position of trust within a household. That's what a steward did according to biblical terminology. As you read the parables that the Lord gave, He speaks of a steward in various cases. A steward was entrusted with certain duties, with a certain position within his household to dispense the good things that the Master had given to him to those who were then the household. Paul is simply saying that the office of minister is not his, nor is it anyone else's. As to the order, as to the function, as to what it is, it is the Lord's stewardship committed to him. 
You see, ministers are not first and foremost, dear ones, ministers of the church. They are first and foremost ministers of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you invert that order and make ministers first and foremost ministers of the church, you have a sure formula for backsliding from purity of doctrine, worship, discipline, and government. Because the minister will say his first and primary obligation is to the church. And that can be at times very arbitrary and be left to a democratic whim of the people. No, it is not that he is first and foremost a minister of the church. He is first and foremost a minister of Christ. And because he is a minister of Christ, he has been entrusted with good things. The glorious gospel of Jesus Christ to declare to those within the household. To give them the good things of God. And so, secondarily, he is a minister to the church. Not only do we see from this text then that the office of a minister is a stewardship. Secondly, the office of minister is one of authority in ministering to Christ's church. The Apostle says in Colossians 1.25 concerning this dispensation, this stewardship committed to him, he says, which is given to me for you. Ministers, dear ones, have been given the keys of the kingdom for the benefit of Christ's church. They are primarily and directly given by Christ to His ministers. They are secondarily and indirectly given to ministers by the church. When the church ordains and sets ministers aside, and when the people approve of this man's gifts and qualifications to serve in that capacity, they confirm what the Lord has already given and bestowed. The keys of the kingdom, as I mentioned earlier, are that which speak of the authority which Christ has given to his ministers. In Matthew 16:19, Matthew 16:19, the Lord speaks to the apostle Peter who represents in this particular case not only the other apostles but all ministers of the gospel when he says And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You notice it is keys in the plural and not key in the singular. 
For the Lord has given basically two keys to his ministers. A key of knowledge and the key of discipline or the key of preaching and the key of jurisdiction. The Lord has given to his ministers primarily the means of opening the door to the kingdom of Christ, that key that opens heaven to his people, the preaching of his word, the declaration of the gospel of Christ, the proclaiming of the whole counsel of God, and what flows from that then is jurisdiction and discipline because the Word of God does not go forward without having effect. The Word of God goes forth and it binds us to what is said. We must obey. We don't have a choice. So therefore, jurisdiction and discipline flow from the preaching of God's Word. We can't deal with the Word of God just as we please and say, it doesn't matter what I do with God's Word. It doesn't matter whether I believe the truth. I can ignore it and, know, and nothing will happen. No, there flows from that key of knowledge and preaching, jurisdiction and discipline, according to God's holy Word. The Lord also gives to us as we consider the words he spoke to his apostles, again, representing all ministers of the gospel who would be sent forth from that time forward. <clears throat> we find these words in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. The Lord, by the preaching of His Word, opens the kingdom of heaven, but He also, by His Word, closes the kingdom of heaven to those who will not repent, to those who will not embrace the promise offered, to those who will not embrace and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as He, as he is offered in the gospel, to those who become obstinate in rebellion against Christ and His Word. The kingdom of heaven may be closed the Lord says that whatever is bound on earth will be bound in heaven. That certainly communicates authority from Christ to his ministers. Authority. Again, these keys cannot be used in any way that the minister sees fit. They must be used according to the order which God has ordained in His Word. These keys are only and always to be used for the truth and not against the truth, according to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 13.8. 
Furthermore, these keys are to be used only and always for the edification of the church rather than for its destruction. Again, according to the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 13.10. And anyone who would misuse and abuse the keys of the kingdom is not exercising the authority which Christ has committed to his ministers. They are abusing the authority. They are not using the authority. They are not exercising the authority of Christ. They are exercising their own authority. Their own man-made and human authority, which is no authority at all to bind the conscience. It is only the authority of God that binds the conscience. And thus, if the person holding the office of minister should abuse the authority of that office, he has departed from the lawful office of minister. He is no longer exercising a lawful office which was committed, but he has, in effect, made up his own office at that particular point in his words or in his deeds. He does not have, at that point, the authority of Christ. And then thirdly, from this passage in Colossians 1.25, the office of minister is not only one of stewardship, one of authority given to him by Christ, communicated by the church, but is also one of commission. Notice, Paul says in Colossians 1.25 that this is given to him to fulfill the Word of God. To fulfill the Word of God. He who holds the office of minister, dear ones, is to order his ministry according to the Word of God in doctrine, in worship, in discipline, and in government. As Jesus said when he sent out his disciples, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. That means that the minister, whether he thinks something is insignificant, minor, a detail, is not important. If it is something that is commissioned by Jesus Christ in His Word, he is to fulfill the Word of God. And that is why the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, who was a minister as well, Timothy the minister, the evangelist, in 2 Timothy 4.2, the apostle says, he gives him this charge because this is what his office consists of. Preach the word. Be instant in season and out of season. Reprove. Rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. 
and this warning. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Ministers are men who occupy the office of ministry and depart from that office as it was ordained by Christ will inevitably be used to bring apostasy into the church. It is only, dear ones, by a minister adhering to the office as it was given to him by Christ that there will be reformation. Before looking at our text in Micah chapter 3, let me make this note. We're going to consider in just a moment some of the characteristics of a minister. We're going to focus our attention upon the man in a moment, but we've looked for the time being at the office. But I want to just point out, as significant and important as are the qualifications and gifts that a minister will possess, a faithful minister will possess, these essential characteristics of the office are more fundamental than even the issue of the qualifications of the man. Why? Because it is possible to find extremely qualified men, as it were. Men who are very gifted in being able to teach. Even women who may seem very gifted to teach. But if those qualifications do not match up to the office as it was ordained by Christ, it doesn't matter how gifted they are. It is the office that is absolutely fundamental and from the office we look at the man who fills the office. Do not invert the order. Start with the office and understand clearly what Christ has ordained. You see, it's not even the majority of people within a congregation as they look out They say, we think that this person ought to be a minister. If they do not understand the office, they will miserably fail. Even if that person who occupies the office was voted into that place by a majority of the congregation, he may or she may, in this day and age, they will not, if they're not, fulfilling the office, they will not be those who are in fact truly qualified to hold that office. They will have departed from the office. You see, dear ones, if we... 
cannot distinguish between the office of a minister and the person holding that office, but rather must always see them as one and the same, we will run into many absurdities in Scripture. For the Lord calls certain ones false prophets who yet assume the office of a prophet, as we find in Matthew 7.15. How can he be false if he's in the office? If the person in the office are one and the same, how could he be false? The Lord calls certain ones false teachers who yet assume the office of teacher. In 2 Peter 2.21. He calls certain ones false apostles who assume the office of apostle in Revelation 2.2. And although the people of Israel and Judah, the majority of the people in Israel and Judah, recognize certain men to be prophets, within the visible church at that time in which Micah prophesied. Nevertheless, the Lord says He did not send them. He did not appoint them to that office. For example, in Jeremiah 14.14, and I will read this passage. Jeremiah 14.14. Here are men assuming the office of prophet, but the Lord says, I didn't send them. Then the Lord said unto me, The prophets prophesy lies in my name. I sent them not. Neither have I commanded them. Neither spake unto them. They prophesy unto you a false vision and divination and a thing of naught and the deceit of their heart. What they say to you comes from their own heart and not from me, the Lord says. It comes from their own imagination. It does not come from me. I did not commission them and send them. And so it is possible. And it happens quite frequently, especially in times of great apostasy, as in the days in which we now live. For many to run unsent because they do not fulfill the office of minister. And people are so prone to associate the office and the man holding the office as exactly one and the same. A great, great danger. And dear ones, if we cannot distinguish between the office of minister and the one that holds that office, we will not only be driven to many absurdities, but even driven to such blasphemies wherein we must conclude that even the man of sin, the man of sin, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, namely the supreme pastor of the Romish church, the Pope, is a true and faithful minister of Jesus Christ, even though he himself, sets himself up in the church of Christ and usurps the authority of Christ to rule within the church of Christ. We will be driven to such blasphemy. One who blasphemes the Lord by usurping his authority becomes a minister if we cannot separate the office from the man holding the office. My second main point then, this Lord's Day, is the faithful minister described. Let us now consider the man, not the office, but the man who occupies the office. 
the qualifications that we should look for in such men who hold the office of minister. Micah 3.8 We won't be looking any further in our text than that. Micah 3.8 Where Micah stands out from amongst the false prophets and the false priests of that time, he stands out as one, perhaps standing with his contemporary Isaiah, who ministered at about the same time, but stands out in a minority as to numbers, greatly outnumbered by all the false prophets and all the false teachers and false priests at that time, unfaithful as they were. He stands out and he says to them all, But truly I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord and of judgment and of might to declare unto Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Here in chapter 3 of Micah, the Lord directs his covenant lawsuit against the leaders in both church and state who bear a greater degree of responsibility for the sin and corruption manifested in Israel and Judah for to whom much is given, much is required. And they have been given the oracles of God. They have been given the office of magistrate the office of minister, but they have perverted and corrupted those good offices by the men who hold them. They occupy offices that have been ordained by God, and yet they have used, or rather, should I say, they have abused these offices to their own self-seeking profit and advantage. You see, they should, as, as ministers of the Lord, they should have been endearing the people to their heavenly husband. As God's bride, they should have been bringing them, escorting them, as it were, leading them into a greater and stronger relationship with their heavenly husband. But rather, they were the very ones who were leading the people, the bride of the Lord, away from their heavenly husband. And the holy jealousy of the Lord now burns against those who have driven his bride from himself. And so let us consider from our text three qualifications. Three qualities that we should look for in men who hold the office of minister. First of all, a faithful minister is one in whom the power of godliness is manifested. The power of godliness For Micah says, but truly I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord. 
Now, that is not to imply that a faithful minister is sinless in life. In fact, the ministers of God in the Old Testament and in the New Testament were mere vessels of clay with various weaknesses and frailties. Consider how discouraged Elijah was as he fled from Jezebel and as he cries out in great despondency before God that he is the only one left in all of Israel that has not bowed the knee to Baal. Not exactly at that point in his life, the most courageous warrior and fighter, but he seems to be at that point certainly retreating. Or consider again that minister Peter, who denied even knowing the Lord three times. Or consider what the Apostle says about ministers when he says that they are mere earthen vessels in 2 Corinthians 4.7. What is that communicating? They're mere earthen vessels. It's communicating that they are weak and frail like a clay pot that can be broken. It has cracks. It's marred. But we look not ultimately to the clay pot, but we look at that which is within the clay pot, which is the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is proclaimed by faithful ministers. Yes, they have weaknesses. Yes, they have frailties. They're growing in their sanctification like everyone else is. In fact, the Apostle Paul says, Concerning ministry, who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient to be a minister of the Lord Jesus Christ? What mere human being can say, I'm adequate, I'm sufficient in myself to be a minister of Christ? No one. The Apostle says, our sufficiency, our adequacy is from God. And so we must always keep that in mind. Ministers are sinners saved by the grace of God. Faithful ministers are sinners saved by the grace of God like any other person. Yes, they can fall. Thus, I'm not saying a faithful minister is a perfect minister. However, a faithful minister, dear ones, is one whose life is more than mere profession of the truth. There is evidence of the power of God's Spirit in his conversation in life. There is evidence of the power of God's Spirit in his marriage and in his family, in his ministry and in his calling. We look for more than a mere profession in the life of a minister of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus said you will know them, that is, the false prophets, the false teachers, by their fruits. 
That is, by their life as well as by their doctrine. And similarly, you will know the faithful ministers by their life and by their doctrine. Not only by their doctrine, but by their life as well. A power of godliness and holiness in their life. In 2 Timothy 3.5, the Apostle says this, concerning those who are false teachers, he says, they have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. A form. An outward form. A formalism. Going through the motions of the profession of the truth. Uh, Paul says the same thing or a similar kind of thing to Titus in Titus 1.16. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him. We look for, in ministers of the Gospel, we look for the power of godliness operating, growing in their life. That is why the Lord has, in fact, given certain qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3, most of which address the issue of the power of godliness evidenced in their life. When you come to the end, you find the issue of doctrine, but most of those qualifications that are mentioned in 1 Timothy 3 have to do with the power of godliness operative in their life. Furthermore, say with regard to this first qualification mentioned by Micah, although not every sin or moral failure will make a minister unfaithful, not every sin or moral failure will make a minister, an unfaithful minister, those sins in his life which become scandalous and which he will not diligently seek to overcome or those which he obstinately persists and continues in, such sins will make him an unfaithful minister. Again, I say with regard to this first qualification of, a, of the power of godliness, I say that a minister is one who is not a stranger to prayer. He is not a stranger to communion with Jesus Christ. He knows what experimental religion is. He's not a stranger to the one who has commissioned him. He lives in communion with Christ. He enjoys communion with Christ. How can he possibly communicate the importance of the spirit of godliness? Of the power of godliness. How can he possibly communicate that to his congregation? How can he communicate it to the flock of Jesus Christ if there is no evidence of that in his own life? 
I would submit to you, dear ones, if the power of godliness is not evident in his life, he will be a mere hypocrite in the pulpit. And woe upon all of us who would ascend into this most holy place, this pulpit, to preach what we have no real love or diligence to practice ourselves. Woe upon us. God's curse rests upon us. Give me any time, dear ones, a minister who evidences the power of godliness in his life, although he may not be the most dynamic or moving preacher in the world. He's faithful to the truth and he evidences the power of godliness. Give me that man over someone who is dynamic. That one will not mislead the flock. The second qualification mentioned by Micah is that a faithful minister is one in whom justice abides. Micah says that he is one in whom the power of judgment, judgment resides. That is justice. You see, he not only evidences the power of the Holy Spirit in his life, but he also evidences the power of the Holy Spirit in his doctrine and what he believes and how he judges because it is by God's truth that we judge everything. The faithful minister, dear ones, loves the whole counsel of God and has been given the grace to preach and teach what is true and to testify against and expose all that is false. He is gifted by the Spirit to discern the truth from error. He recognizes, dear ones, that although his duties as a minister are many, nevertheless, the primary duties of his calling are ministry of the word and prayer, as the apostles teach in Acts 6.4. He has many duties with regard to the flock. Praying for them, visiting them, calling and encouraging them, exhorting them. Issues of discipline, but primarily that above all other duties he is commissioned to is the ministry of the word and prayer. Let the minister, dear ones, forsake the pursuit of these two duties as his primary goal in his ministry and he will prove to be unfaithful in all the rest of his duties. But let him pursue those two duties with all of his heart and he will be faithful in all the other duties which Christ has given to him. Again, I note that a faithful minister, dear ones, is not perfect in every detail of doctrine. But it's not because he considers details of doctrine unimportant or insignificant. 
But because He is a sinner and because He is a finite man, He cannot know and grasp every single doctrine and detail of the truth. He is limited. Just as our confession teaches that no synod or assembly that gathers to rule is infallible, but many and all have and are capable of erring, so every minister is in the same category, is fallible. And yet, dear ones, he embraces and he pursues the truth of the vengeance. He would know his God and he would know the truth of the Lord God. And he would not be content in any area of which he knows that he is ignorant of. He would not be content in just remaining in that ignorance, but he will continue to pursue and to pray and to study that God would reveal to him, even in those areas, the truth. Calvin, I think, has a classic remark in regard to this very area that it is not the number of degrees, as it were, that is behind a minister's name that qualifies him to be a minister of the gospel, but it is his knowledge of the truth. Calvin says, For many simple men who have never been trained up in learning have yet been so endued by the celestial spirit when they came to great trials that they have closed the mouths of great doctors who seem to understand all oracles. By such evidences, God openly proves at this day that he is the same now as when he formerly endued his servant Micah with a power so rare and so extraordinary. You remember that the apostles themselves confounded the the Sanhedrin. Stephen confounded the doctors. They, they looked upon these men who were uneducated and they said, because of the power and authority with which they spoke the truth, these men have been with Jesus. Certainly the extraordinary prophets and apostles of Christ were prevented from uttering error when they declared by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit the revelation of God's word. But even apostles in their ordinary lives could on occasion tempor temporarily lead others astray from the truth. As in the case of Peter at Antioch, when he left the table and fellowship of Gentile believers to sit and eat with only Jewish believers who yet maintained certain aspects of the ceremonial law to be necessary. But in the case of faithful ministers who err from the truth in any area, when they realize that they have erred, there is something about a faithful minister that faithful minister will be humbled before God will be humbled before the congregation and the church and will repent of his error. 
such is the qualification, the evidence, the power of God's Spirit that works in a faithful minister. And one more thing concerning a faithful minister in regard to the Spirit and the power of judgment that resides within him. A faithful minister, dear ones, is one who professes and practices the true Christian religion to the degree of biblical purity in doctrine, worship, discipline, and government to which the Lord has brought the church thus far in history. He is not continually trying to reinvent the wheel to come up with the ideas on his own, but he looks back he looks back to the faithful, reformed confessions and creeds, catechisms. He compares them with the Word of God. He sees that they are faithful and he adheres to those degrees of sanctification, corporate sanctification, to which the church has yet attained. And he embraces them. And until there is a more pure Reformed confession, creed, catechism, or subordinate standard. He continues to adhere to them as being agreeable to and faithful to the teaching of the Scripture. And this, dear ones, is exactly the faithful exhortation of the Lord in Scripture to all ministers as well as to all the people of God. And I will give to you just very, very briefly the exhortation of the Lord to not let go of that to which our forefathers have attained in the faith, to hold it dear, to not relinquish it. Proverbs 22, verse 28. Remove not the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set. If that is true of that which is land, which is real estate, that you are not to move the boundaries of your forefathers, if that is true of that which passes away in this earth, how much more true it is that which does not pass away, the eternal Word of God which is forever settled in heaven, that to which the church has attained and professed accurately, agreeably to the word of God, did not move those boundaries of your faithful forefathers. Jeremiah 6.16 Jeremiah 6.16 The Lord says to Jeremiah, Thus saith the Lord, and Jeremiah say, says to the, to the, to the people of, of uh, Judah and Jerusalem, to the leaders, Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways and see and ask for the old paths. Where is the good way and walk therein? And ye shall find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk therein. Search out the good old paths, dear ones. In Jeremiah 
These same good old paths are called the ancient paths, that we're not to depart from the ancient paths, the Lord says. In Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul exhorts through the uh, exhorts on behalf of the Lord this church and especially the the ministers of this church, the elders of this church of Philippi, he says to them, Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. Brethren, be followers together of me and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example." Put a mark and identify those who walk according to what has been already attained, which represents the apostolic teaching of God's Word. Those who walk accordingly in history walk in their footsteps. The Apostle says, Do not alter, do not change, use even their confessional statements. As that which represents and is agreeable to the truth. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. Again, the Apostle Paul says, Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Follow their faith, their profession and their practice of the faith. And then finally, in Revelation 3.25, the Lord Jesus says to the angel of the church of Thyatira, that is, to the minister, or to the ministry of this church, the Lord says, but that which ye have already, hold fast till I come. That to which you've already attained, hold fast. Do not let go of what you now have as the truth Cling to it. And so the minister of the gospel is to have the power of judgment. And finally, a faithful minister, according to Micah 3.8, is one in whom courage is displayed. He has the power of might. Courage. He fears God more than he fears any man. And he fears God so much because he fears man so little. This is one who is a faithful minister of Christ. A faithful minister, dear ones, is not moved by the approval of men. He is not moved by the status of men, whether... It be magistrate, king, prince, governor, whomever. He is not moved by the financial gain offered to him. All such temptations to overlook truths or ignore sins and errors on the part of the minister that may be offensive to some or that may decrease the number of the people within the congregation, or may even threaten the financial giving 
to the church or may even bring down the wrath of the magistrate upon him. All such temptations are firmly resisted on the part of a faithful minister who is courageous. If you were to ask most ministers today what they thought of bribes, I'm sure that most would recoil from the idea. They would recoil from the idea of being financially bribed to ignore certain truths or errors. If you were just to, in its stark language, say, what do you think about bribes? They'd probably recoil from that. However, I submit to you, dear ones, I submit that ministers yield to bribes all of the time by preaching to the approval of men. I submit to you that ministers submit to bribes all the time by preaching to the applause of men, to the financial gain of the church, to the growth of their congregation. They submit to bribes all of the time. And when we do so, dear ones, we have, in fact, accepted a bribe and are guilty of simony, buying the ministry of Christ like a curate who is given the largest church as a favor performed for the bishop. We've become no better. Much more subtle, but no better. Dear ones, we need more ministers like Andrew Melville, minister of the Church of Scotland who would not tolerate flattery in the pulpit or even before the king himself. When King James sought to encroach upon the liberty of the church within the realm of Scotland, Mr. Melville discharged the following message to the king. He said to the king, This is not a time to flatter, but to speak plainly. For our commission is from the living God to whom the king is subject. And then approaching the king said, Sire, we will always humbly reverence your majesty in public, but have having opportunity of being with your majesty in private, we must discharge our duty or else be enemies to Christ. And now, sire, I must tell you that there are two kings and two kingdoms in Scotland. There is King James, the head of the commonwealth, and there is Christ Jesus, the head of the church, whose subject King James the sixth is, and of whose kingdom he is not a head nor a lord, but a member. And they whom Christ hath called and commanded to watch over his church and govern his spiritual kingdom have sufficient authority and power from him so to do, which no Christian king nor prince should control or discharge, but assist and support. Otherwise, they are not faithful subjects to Christ. The third qualification, then, that Micah speaks of 
And a faithful minister is that of courage. And you notice that he directs his message to the sins and the transgressions of Israel and Judah. He does not simply speak a positive message, as it were. He exposes sin and error. In conclusion, then, dear ones, a faithful minister is one who unashamedly declares the gospel of salvation to the lost and the needy of the world. He preaches without reservation a message of reconciliation. He exhorts from the pulpit. He admonishes from the pulpit. He even pleads from the pulpit that those who hear the message would repent and turn to Jesus Christ. He corrects from the pulpit. For he is the ambassador of Jesus Christ declaring to all who hear, be reconciled to God. He declares to all who hear that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient to save all who come to Him. No one who comes to Christ, dear ones, will be turned away regardless of his sins which he has committed. No matter how heinous the life of sin that he has lived or she has lived, no one will be turned who comes to Jesus Christ. And so the message he declares is one of grace and mercy. There is healing for all of you who come and acknowledge that you are desperately sick in your sins. There is living water which flows forth from the words that the minister proclaims to all those who are thirsty. There is the living bread which will satisfy your hunger like no bread upon this earth can satisfy your hunger. For all those who embrace the Lord Jesus Christ and His promise. Take the Lord Jesus Christ, dear ones, today by faith and embrace the promise of Him who cannot lie. And who is the only hope of your eternal salvation. And if you do so, I declare to you as a minister of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, I declare to you as a minister to whom the keys of the kingdom of heaven have been entrusted, that you will never perish, but will have everlasting life. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Father, Thou could have chosen to declare the gospel of salvation by audible voice from heaven. Thou could have given the message to Thine angels to declare the everlasting gospel of salvation to Thy people. 
But in thy wisdom, O Lord our God, thou hast chosen to declare the gospel of salvation through weak and frail ministers, mere men, earthen vessels, in order that those who believe would know that it is not the minister who saves, but it is the Lord Jesus Christ who saves by the preaching, the faithful preaching of the word. So that no glory can come to the minister. For the minister is like John the Baptist, simply a voice crying in the wilderness. The minister points to Christ. And Father, we thank Thee for the glory of Thy salvation. We ask, O Father, that Thou would stir up our hearts this day that we would desire and pray for godly ministers, faithful ministers, who own the office as it has been established and ordained by God. We ask, Lord, that Thou would send such laborers out into the harvest field. We pray, Heavenly Father, that Thou would keep us from all false teachers, from all false prophets, that, Father, we would adhere to those who are faithful and true. We ask all of these things, trusting that Thou, our Good Shepherd, will lead and guide us in all of these things. In Jesus' name, Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-450, 3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. 
For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.